a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, dear and beloved nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, that woman, Liv. Well, 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 here we are again with another play. I really enjoyed telling you all the story of Ivica and I at Alice, among literally every other play I've told over the many years of this podcast. So we are back at it again. This is another that I've been meaning to cover forever. It's one of the most famous plays of ancient Greece and one of the few that features like basically all deities in itself, something I find fascinating when it comes to Greek tragedy. 
Basically, all the plays that I've featured in the past have mainly centered around mortals, with perhaps a god or two thrown in during a particularly epic deus ex machina, god in the machine, coming in to save the day. But this one? Basically all gods, save for one, and many minor gods that I rarely get to talk about otherwise. That is all to say, today we are covering none other than Prometheus Bound, which was, maybe, maybe not, written by the earliest surviving tragedian, Aeschylus. And once again, a huge thank you to Ash Strain, who helped with loads of research on this play. Ash helped me back with Iphigenia too, and man, what a difference it makes when it comes to writing episodes based on plays. Thank you, Ash. As for translations, we've used a lot of them. Ash's research uses primarily the Weir-Smith translation, and all of my quotes are from that, unless I say otherwise, in the moment. But also, Ash consulted the Theodoridis translation, and I referred to the Rom translation. These are all listed in the episode's description, not to worry. So like I said, Aeschylus is the oldest surviving tragedian that we have. While Sophocles and Euripides were contemporaries competing against each other in a number of festivals, Aeschylus was writing long before both of them. He was a huge name in the ancient world and basically was the guy the other tragedians would look up to, at least after his death. He's most famous for his trilogy, the only surviving trilogy from ancient Greece, the Oresteia. You'll remember the Oresteia not only because I've already told you the story on the podcast, if not those individual plays, but because the first play in the trilogy is the Agamemnon, which is quoted from heavily in the recent episode on our girl Cassandra. The trilogy began with the Agamemnon, moved on to the Libation Bearers, where Orestes and Electra set about avenging the death of their father by killing their mother, Clytemnestra, and it finishes with the Eumenides, the kindly ones. Basically the only other play that heavily features gods like this one, the story of Orestes after killing his mother when the Arenaways, the Furies, hound him before he's finally put on trial for her death. Like I said, I've told the story of Orestes and Electra and their killing of Clytemnestra, but not that trilogy entirely, because it's wild and detailed and there's a trial with gods. I might have just convinced myself I should cover those plays specifically. But not today. Today is Prometheus, the good guy. This is one of the few other surviving plays that's attributed to Aeschylus. Though, like so many things from ancient Greece, there is debate about whether or not he actually wrote it, or whether maybe it was written by his son long after his death, or maybe by someone else entirely. Regardless, it's famous for being Aeschylus's, and thus his name is in the title of this episode, and it makes for better SEO. <laughs> Still, whoever wrote Prometheus Bound, it was likely part of another trilogy, one that told the story of Prometheus stealing the fire from Hephaestus, from the Olympian gods broadly, bringing it to Earth, being punished for that, and eventually freed by Heracles. The only play that we have, though, is this one. The Punishment. The Binding, you might even call it. This is episode 144. All this over a bit of fire? Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound.
before we can dive right into the play itself, The Prometheus Bound, we need to cover a little bit of background. Like so many Greek tragedies, Prometheus Bound jumps right into the action and expects the theatergoers of the ancient world to have a good idea of what exactly is going on. Since you're not ancient Greeks attending the Great Dionysia in maybe, maybe not 479 BCE, and thus not expected to have an intricate understanding of the general story of Prometheus and the Olympian gods, I will remind you what the situation is. Prometheus is the titan god of foresight. He sided with the Olympian gods in their war with the titans, the Titanomachy. But Prometheus became a bit disenchanted with Zeus's choice of rulership style after the war. That is, Zeus was being an enormous dick to the early humans of Earth, and Prometheus felt for them. There's a whole mess of confusing stories when it comes to the origin of humanity according to Greek myth, so I won't go into that whole deal here. There's a lot of maybe they had different ages of humanity that were time after time wiped out for being shitty or before the final stage of humanity as we know it was brought into existence. Again, it's confusing as hell, but the point is that Prometheus had a thing for defying Zeus when it came to humanity, and Zeus was trying to kill off humanity. Where we find him in the story, you can imagine that humanity, as we know it, exists As do women, we won't go into the whole Pandora creation story as it relates to Prometheus and Epimetheus here, I've told that one before. Where we find Prometheus now, humanity exists, and he's given them fire. Very, very much against Zeus's wishes. Zeus, you see, was being his usual self and was generally being shitty to humanity, He may have wanted to wipe them out all entirely and start again, or he just wanted to keep them under his thumb, completely beholden to the gods, and so that they would basically be lost without them. Namely, he did not want them to have fire. That would give them too much power. It would give them too much freedom. With fire, humanity could craft necessary things. They could craft weaponry. They could eat better and generally just exist as much, much, much happier people. So Prometheus gave them fire. Again, very much against Zeus's wishes. Prometheus stole fire from Hephaestus's forge and brought it to humans down on Earth. And this, well, this really angered Zeus. It angered him so much that he sent two of his divine forces to punish Prometheus for what he'd done. Zeus sends two demons, demon gods, that exist as personifications of worldly forces and concepts. I've mentioned these types of gods before, but the two in question are Kratos, divine power, and Bia, divine force or might. A lot of translations just use their concepts as their names because that's what the ancient Greek words mean in English, literally power and force or might. But I really enjoy their Greek names and it makes them feel a bit more mythological and less allegorical, so I'm calling them Kratos and Bia. Along with Kratos and Bia is Hephaestus, the god whose fire Prometheus stole, but definitely not a god who was keen to punish Prometheus in the way that Zeus hoped. Interestingly, it seems that in this take on the gods, Hephaestus is not the stepson of Zeus, but actually his son. This, of course, only adds to the drama that's about to unfold. And so this is where we find ourselves in the play, The Prometheus Bound, with Kratos and Bia dragging Prometheus to his punishment in far-off lands to the east in Scythia, 
with a reluctant Hephaestus in tow. We're dropped right into the action, or rather, the punishment for the action. To Earth's remotest limits we come, to the Scythian land and untrodden solitude. And now, Hephaestus, yours is the charge to observe the mandates laid upon you by the Father, to clamp this miscreant upon the high, craggy rocks in shackles of binding adamant that cannot be broken. For your own flower, flashing fire, source of all the arts, he has purloined and bestowed upon mortal creatures. Such is his offense, for this he is bound to make requital to the gods, so that he may learn to bear with the sovereignty of Zeus and cease his men-loving ways. That is how Kratos begins this play. Ultimately, this play is about the gods in a truly fascinating way. It's about the power of the various gods, but it's also about the long-term hierarchy of the gods. Prometheus is ancient. In this play, he's meant to be maybe even more ancient than in the more traditional mythology that we have. Here, Prometheus is the son of Themis, the primordial titan goddess who basically is justice. And that's saying something. He's also connected here with Gaia, Mother Earth and the source of prophecy before Apollo became the source of prophecy. He's meant to be primordial, old, ancient, from the absolute beginning of things. And in the name of humanity, he's going up against Zeus, the current ruler and a god who is absolutely being painted as a tyrant. Zeus has come in as this new ruler. He's taken out much, much older beings than him, the Titans, in a horrible war that pitted Titan against Titan. And now he's immediately become tyrannical, something the ancient Greeks felt very strongly about. This is also why the question of who wrote this play and when is particularly interesting, because its content and message about Zeus's tyranny is particularly appropriate in light of the period during the end of Aeschylus's life and after, because we're talking the Peloponnesian War, we're talking Athenian democracy versus the tyrannical way the Athenians saw their adversaries, the Spartans. That Athenian democracy was a direct response to, yes, you guessed it, tyranny. This message of tyranny is so intentional that the word used earlier by Kratos that's translated here as sovereignty, and in other translations it's rule, was the ancient Greek word tyrannus, which means those things, sovereignty and rule, but it means rule or sovereignty that was taken by force. It's related to the word tyrannos, which was an ancient Greek word for king, but specifically the type of king that's, well, a tyrant. They had other words for kings that had more positive connotations. It's fascinating, which is why I'm rambling on about it instead of going into the play. <laughs> 
It's fascinating because all of those historical aspects I just rambled on about, but it's also fascinating for divine reasons, primarily because of how we view religious worship now with the supremacy of these monotheisms where the God figure is the most ancient thing there is. There's nothing older than God, but here there are so many beings older than Zeus. And the only reason Zeus is the supreme leader is because he won a war. That in itself is so fascinating. And it's also a nudge at people who like to yell at me for shit-talking Zeus because, you know, he's the god of everything. And I mean, I guess that means I should respect him. But let's look at this play and the ancient Greek people and their mythology broadly. They also thought he was a shit sometimes, and there's a play to prove it. So certain modern Hellenists, I respect you, but you've got to also respect my right to talk the truth about Zeus, because the ancient Greeks that came before you saw him as a shit too. (laughs) Anyway, back to this ancient and primordial Prometheus who's going up against the new king of the gods and god much, much, much Prometheus's junior, Zeus. Right from the start, we're meant to understand just how deep in shit Prometheus is. Kratos and Bia are meant to serve pretty obviously as the tyrannical henchmen of Zeus. They are brutish and grotesque. They're meant to be scary and daunting as they introduce the play and what the audience is about to see. Prometheus bound. That is, Prometheus getting what will be a horrible, horrible punishment all in the name of Zeus, and all because he brought humanity the gift of fire. So unlike so many of my favorite Greek tragedies, we're not meant to feel for or understand the traditional villains here. There is no Clytemnestra or Medea, no Dionysus, where we know what the characters are about to do is wrong, but we're also meant to feel for them anyway, to at least understand their motivations and their intentions. No, here, the titan who gave humanity fire is being punished for it. The Greeks watching, whether they believed this origin or not, they're meant to appreciate Prometheus, to consider him a kind of savior of humanity. Prometheus is a good guy. As Rachel Smythe brought up in my episode with her last week, Prometheus really is one of the only good guys. I certainly can't think of a bad thing he's done, at least when it comes to an audience of humans. As Kratos announced in that opening, Hephaestus is there to be the one to actually chain Prometheus up. He's the one who's meant to perform the act of imprisoning the Titan for giving his fire to the humans. But Hephaestus isn't angry with Prometheus. He doesn't have any skin in the game when it comes to whether or not the humans have fire. It seems to be Zeus who's the one who's really concerned with keeping the humans sufficiently subjugated. Hephaestus, meanwhile, is actually quite fond of Prometheus. The two share a love of craftsmanship. It's something that Prometheus is associated with in addition to Hephaestus, particularly because of this association with fire. They're pals. They're friends. They've got a lot of things in common, in a way that neither of them has much in common with the rest of the Olympians or even other deities. You remember, Hephaestus has never been a particular fan of the Olympian gods, nor has he been treated particularly well by them. They've been pretty big assholes to him, actually. He really had to work to get back in their good graces, and it seems like he kind of respects Prometheus for just doing what he wanted by giving the humans fire. Still, as much as Hephaestus doesn't seem to want 
to punish Prometheus, he recognizes that he kind of has to. Because the alternative is, well, Zeus's wrath, and that would kind of suck, as is evidenced by Prometheus being punished at all. Hephaestus comes in to begin chaining up Prometheus with his unbreakable chains. Only Hephaestus can do this job. He's the only one who can forge these types of constraints, and he is beholden to Zeus, the new and all-powerful ruler. Zeus isn't in this play at all, but it is simultaneously about him. Basically, everything is happening because of him and his wrath, his tyranny, his power over everyone involved is constantly being emphasized. According to the Rom translation, Hephaestus ends his first lines about Prometheus's punishment with, quote, The mind of Zeus cannot be overturned by pleas. Harsh is the ruler when rule is new begun. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll board it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. 
We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In Eskils' take on the physical imprisonment of Prometheus, the experience itself is more about isolation than it is about the horror of his more traditional punishment. Here, there is no eagle flying in to peck out Prometheus's liver every day while it grows back overnight so that the whole mess can begin again the next day. In Aeschylus' Prometheus Bound, as Hephaestus explains to the Titan as he's doing it, the punishment that Zeus is inflicting upon the high-minded and lofty titan Prometheus is that he will be chained up in the mountains far, far away from the humans that he cares so deeply for, where he will be scorched and aged by the sun all day before the cycle repeats itself again the next day. It's a darker punishment than the one we know. It's more about yanking him away from his precious humanity than it is about pain or gore. It's sadder. It's more depressing. It makes Zeus seem just a bit more evil. Kratos, meanwhile, is watching Hephaestus commiserate with Prometheus, and he questions why the god cares, why he feels bad for Prometheus at all. Kratos is really meant to be a true henchman of Zeus, there just to signify Zeus's power and the fear other gods have of him. Honestly, this is a super interesting take on the gods. Like I, like I said, there aren't a lot of plays that include gods so explicitly as the main characters throughout. They're usually just there to finish things up or fuck shit up, just provide some kind of divine mess. But here we get an insight into the behavior of the gods outside epics and hymns. This is just a playwright of the early classical period painting a picture of how the gods saw each other, and particularly how they saw Zeus. No one is free except Zeus, Kratos says explicitly. This suggests that the Greeks didn't really fear the gods for themselves, you know? Or at least they didn't fear them like Christianity often expects one to fear God. Like, Aeschylus is out here being like, okay, so this titan Prometheus gave us fire, he's super important to humanity, and he gave us awesome shit. And here's Zeus, the literal king of the gods, fucking shit up for Prometheus. Like, it is definitely not kind to Zeus. Hephaestus begins the process chaining Prometheus up, and Kratos taunts him as he does. Again, he's a stand-in for Zeus. He's calling out Hephaestus for feeling bad for the Titan, telling him it's pointless and that he should, quote, strike harder, clamp him tight, leave nothing loose, for he is wondrously clever at finding a way out of even desperate straits. Kratos taunts both the men, but he turns his focus to Prometheus now, telling him that he's nothing compared to Zeus, and he tells Hephaestus to really make the punishment hurt. As Ash said in their notes, what a dick. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hephaestus gets it. The Rom translation has him saying, 
Ay, ay, Prometheus, now I groan for your pains. Kratos goes on and on. He's being really fucking obnoxious and horrible, just over the top, before Hephaestus finally snaps at him. Like, dude, I fucking know what I'm doing. You don't have to make every moment of this torture. Fucking personification of power god trying to tell the god of fire how to do his job. I am embarrassed for you, Kratos. But finally, Hephaestus is done. Prometheus has been chained up. And so he leaves. Prometheus is, just briefly, alone with Kratos and Bia. As he stands there, chained to a mountainside with unbreakable chains, Kratos tells Prometheus, quote, Falsely the gods call you Prometheus, for you yourself need forethought to free yourself from this handiwork. Prometheus is left alone, exactly the intention of the punishment. He can't move, he's left to solitude and the elements of the far-off, desolate, Scythian mountains. The harsh, burning sun of the day and the cold, frosty nights. This location is more about how far it is and and less about the actual location. It's the farthest place one could imagine, the farthest away from the humanity that Prometheus loves. And now that he's alone, it's time Prometheus has his own monologue. He begins, quote, Oh, you bright sky of heaven, you swift-winged breezes, you river waters and infinite laughter of the waves of ocean. Oh, universal mother earth, and you, all-seeing orb of the sun, to you I call. See what I, a god, endure from the other gods. Prometheus goes on, lamenting the horror and loneliness he's found himself in. Of course, he knows he's in the right, but that doesn't stop him from lamenting where he's found himself. He's calling out to those titan gods who came before him, the ones who are objectively more important and more powerful than Zeus, even if they aren't in the grand scheme of divine rulership over the earth. Still, they're the right people to call upon in your hour of need— Prometheus relives his theft of fire for the audience, reminding them what he's done to deserve this punishment, how he stole the fire hidden in a fennel stalk and brought it down to earth to help every mortal alive. But then he hears something in the distance. He imagines himself being found by the other gods, mocked and stared at for his punishment. But no. It isn't another god, it isn't anyone there to mock him or to make light of his situation. It's the chorus. Oceanids, second-generation titans, the daughters of Earth-encircling Oceanus, fly in on a winged chariot, there to speak with and reassure Prometheus. They're there for him. They heard of what's happening to him, and they rushed off to see him to let him know he isn't alone. The Oceanids tell Prometheus that they flew to his side so quickly that they didn't even have time to put on their sandals. The Oceanids agree with Prometheus. There's a reason it's Oceanids sent to see him, sent in as this chorus, rather than some group of goddesses more closely aligned with Zeus. The Oceanids, like Prometheus, are primordial and ancient. They're from the time before, 
They knew the world before Zeus took over and began implementing his tyranny. The Oceanids announced, quote, For there are new rulers in heaven, and Zeus governs with lawless customs. That which was mighty before, he now brings to nothing. The Oceanids and Prometheus go on to discuss Zeus and his rule. They speak of the titans that had fallen, those primordial beings that have either been imprisoned by Zeus or simply bowed before him, relinquishing their power to this new ruler. Prometheus laments that he's not locked away with the other titans deep in Tartarus, where his punishment wouldn't be so shameful, where he wouldn't be alone. They speak of Zeus's power. It's all about Zeus and this new rule over the world and what it's brought with it. And what Zeus and his rule has brought is certainly nothing good. nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you all so much for listening, as usual. This is obviously just the beginning of Prometheus Bound. As with every time I cover these plays, there's just so much, so many interesting things to say that I clearly just go on and on and on. Um, next week will be more play and less of my wild commentary, but for now, it's just so fucking interesting, you guys. There's so much to say about when this was written and why. That's the thing about plays, right, is they were written so much more intentionally than the mythology. Like, there is something behind it. It's not just about mythological beliefs. Instead, they're commentary on the world, what was going on, how these things were viewed. Particularly in this case, this is a commentary on tyranny. But what makes it so interesting is that it is connected with Zeus, Ah, it's just, it's fucking fascinating. You all really seem to enjoy Iphigeniad Aulis, and so did I. So I hope that these wildly detailed retelling of Prometheus Bound will be the same. Again, next week, it'll be way more play. But honestly, it's just so utterly fascinating the way this play treats Zeus, the way it makes him to be the obvious and unquestionable villain. It shows the intricacies of the ancient Greek religion and the way they thought of their gods. Such stark contrast to the more modern idea of God and religion. There's no need to bow to these gods to imagine that they're faultless. Zeus is a shit. He's the top god, but he's a shit. <laughs> Let's also just take a quick final moment to focus on the introduction of the chorus. A bunch of primordial goddesses in a winged chariot flying in to visit Prometheus where he stands, chained on stage. How would this have been performed? It's too early in Greek theater to have utilized the deus ex machina structure, the machine, as far as I understand it, that cool-ass crane type thing that they had for these moments. It would have certainly come after Aeschylus, given he was writing his plays so very early if this was written by Aeschylus, but either way, I think it's still too early. I just want to know what this would have looked like. How beautiful it would have been as an audience member watching in the theater of Dionysus, nestled in the side of the Acropolis Hill. Or maybe off in Epidaurus, in its even more famous theater. Seriously, where the fuck is a time machine when I need one? This episode is off the rails. I am so excited for everything coming up on the podcast, though. Finally, I'm getting to a point where I'm actually trying to plan things in advance and feel prepared for whatever the fuck I'm doing. 
What a concept. ADHD is a bitch. Am I right? I have some really exciting episodes, uh, conversation episodes scheduled. I've recorded nine over a three-week period, so there's just so much incoming. I spoke with Ben, who runs the enormous and hilarious Classical Studies memes for Hellenistic teens meme accounts on Twitter and Facebook. He and I have been Twitter friends for a while, so it was super fun to just talk about the classical world and internet culture and God, just everything else, I guess. I spoke to somebody about Homer, all about Homer or lack of Homer, the theories behind who Homer was or who the people were who finally compiled all those long stories into one piece of epic poetry that we now attribute to Homer. It was fascinating. That is coming up. I spoke with someone who plays ancient instruments and writes songs of Homeric hymns and songs of epic characters all about the mythology and the music of that world. So fucking cool. I spoke with someone about monsters and monster theory. Another about the idea of Kalon Kakon, beautiful evil, and the women who wear that label, Pandora and Helen among them. Honestly, I could list, I could keep going on and on. There's so much more. And that doesn't even include the utterly epic series I'm planning all about, yes, Atlantis. Oh man, it's gonna be huge. I cannot wait to share more. Plus, of course, so many more of the regular and always fun narrative episodes. More Prometheus Bound. I'm going to do a deep dive on Helen soon and all the drama that surrounds that famous mortal woman of Greek myth. We're going to go into Apollo and all the stupid shit he did. He was not a particularly great dude, as many of the stories I've already told have indicated. I spoke about him recently on my Patreon-specific episodes, and it was super interesting rambling about that, so a real episode seems in order. Really, I'm just psyched by everything coming. The narrative episodes and the conversation episodes and the reading episodes. I'm thrilled that I've got a plan and I hope you all are just as thrilled as I am. So, you know, stay tuned. Make sure you're subscribed so you get all the episodes when they come out. Rating, reviewing, and subscribing is seriously huge when it comes to a podcast's growth. I reached peak podcast numbers this past summer and then they've dropped a lot, which honestly is super stressful because it's my whole job. So, you know, subscribe. Rate and review if you haven't already. And in thanks for just that, I'm going to read a five-star review I got this week. I'll keep this up, too, picking a review to read at the end of every episode, because thank you to everyone who gives me five-star reviews. This one comes from iTunes from Readings It. I've been raving to all my friends about this podcast, so I figured I'd write an actual review. I love the way Liv tells these stories with a modern feminist perspective and the perfect amount of sarcastic humor. Thank you. This person gets me. This is everything I am in one review, and I, I truly, these, these mean the world to me. So thank you all. I'm going to stop rambling. Are you even listening still? Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate it. You are all the fucking best. Where would I be without you cool ass nerds? <sighs> I'm Liv and I love this shit. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. 
I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return, your time won't, and we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.